Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. For the last few weeks, we've been doing a series in Joseph, looking at that very well-known, well-loved character of Joseph. And this Sunday is the last Sunday in that series. And so we're going to finish the series together uh, by looking at Genesis chapter 42 this morning. Um, And really to understand how we get to Genesis 42, you've got to go back to the start of the Joseph story, where we meet Joseph, who's a 17-year-old kid. And like most 17-year-olds, he thinks he knows everything. Um, And uh, he sort of hasn't connected his brain to his social awareness, and he makes a lot of mistakes, and he's sort of a know-it-all, and he doesn't make any friends amongst his family. He's one of uh, 12 brothers. Um, His father is Jacob. We know these stories really well. And Joseph uh, is uh, blessed by God with dreams. He has these dreams, but they're not sort of ordinary dreams. They're these sort of really weirdly specific dreams about his family family bowing down to him. And because he hasn't sort of grown in his understanding of how to talk and how to, uh, you know, sort of relate to his older brothers, uh, he tells them. So he turns up in the field one day and he's like, guys, you're never going to forget, you're never going to believe uh, the uh, dream I had last night. It was you guys bowing down to me. I think God's telling us that I'm going to be all powerful over you. And that did not make them super happy or put him in their favor in any way. And to make it worse, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. So Jacob has these 12 sons and he has a favorite wife. Now, I don't have time to chase that down this morning, but let's just say if you have to clarify which of your wives is your favorite, you've got too many wives. Okay, write that down. So, but he does have a favorite wife and his favorite wife gives him his favorite son, Joseph. And he doesn't keep this a secret. He uh, creates, he actually makes this colorful coat for Joseph to wear. And it's basically putting a name badge on Joseph that says, daddy's favorite. And so his brothers are not fans of this guy this younger brother who who claims that God has said and and predicted that he will be powerful over them, that they will bow down to him in his dreams. And he's also daddy's favorite. And we're not talking about sort of a bunch of teenagers with some tension around the breakfast table. These guys are angry, scary people. A couple of chapters before the story of Joseph or during the story of Joseph, we see a couple of these brothers go into a town and totally annihilate the town, like kill many, many people. These guys are angry and they're violent and their resentment towards their younger brother starts to bubble, starts to become more and more intense until one day they see him walking towards them in the field in his colorful coat and the resentment and the hate and the jealousy just overflows and they decide they're going to kill him. And there's a couple of voices of reason in the group and they say, well, let's not kill him. He is our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so a caravan on its way to Egypt stops and they take their brother, they tie him up and they sell him to a slave driver. They take off the colorful coat, they they rip it to shreds, they kill a lamb, they put blood over it and they take it to their father and they say, hey dad, we found this in the field, do you think it might be Joseph's? And Jacob realizes that his favorite son has been killed and eaten by a wild animal. 
Joseph heads to Egypt and is sold to one of Pharaoh's highest officials, a guy named Potiphar. And Joseph decides, well, if this is where I am, if this is what, if this is what my life is, I'm going to apply myself. And it turns out that Joseph is actually a pretty good slave. And Potiphar notices this. He notices that Joseph is putting himself you know, into the culture. He learns the culture. He learns the language. He learns the economy. He learns the commerce. He learns the bartering system. And he starts to show this incredible potential, this incredible you know, sort of ethic in how he works and what he puts his hands to. And Potiphar, notices this and says, you know what, you're the best staff member I've got, slave or not, I'm going to put you in charge of my whole household. And so he is elevated into this position of leadership in Potiphar's house. But Potiphar is not the only one who takes notice of Joseph, this strapping, chiseled, good-looked Hebrew slave. Potiphar's wife also takes notice. And so every now and then when her husband's outside of listening uh, distance, she sort of rubs up against Joseph and says, hey, my husband's going to be out of town next week. How about you and I, you know? And Joseph continues to say no, continues to walk away until one day she gets sick of this and jumps him in the living room. And as he is taking off to get away from her, she takes his coat off him. It's another coat that's going to get Joseph into trouble. She calls rape, and at this point, Egypt is the most powerful empire in the world. If one of the most important officials' wives calls rape, rape it is. A Hebrew slave is not going to get a trial. A Hebrew slave is not going to get an argument. He's going to be put to death. But Potiphar sees something in Joseph. He sees character. He sees integrity. He sees this young man who's applied himself. And for whatever reason, Potiphar puts Joseph in jail instead of putting him to death. And so now Joseph is in jail. And again, he says, well, if this is where I am, if this is where God has placed me, I am going to apply myself. And so he starts to show more leadership capacity. And the jailers look at Joseph and they say, look, this guy seems to be pretty good at leading and making things happen. Let's put him in charge of cell block B. And so he becomes one of the key leaders in the jail. And it's during this time that he overhears to a pharaoh those staff members having to talk about their dreams. The baker and the cupbearer are in jail, and they're talking about these dreams that are disturbing them. And so Joseph one day walks up to them and says, hey, guys, I hear you having these dreams. I'm pretty good with dreams. Why don't you tell me your dreams, and I can help you interpret them? And so they do, and he does. And then they get out of jail, and they go and tell Pharaoh because Pharaoh's been having nightmares, and no one can help him understand what these dreams mean. And so these two staff members say, hey, there's actually a Hebrew slave in jail who's good with dreams. He can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh says, bring him to me. So they take this Hebrew slave prisoner, they give him a shower, they give him a shave, they put him in some new clothes, and all of a sudden Joseph is in the royal court before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams, and Joseph interprets them. He says, this is what they mean. Your dreams mean this. For seven years, you're going to live in a blessing, in abundance, and in harvest. For seven years, Egypt is going to experience this incredible season of abundance. You're going to have so many crops. You're going to have so much produce. You're going to have an abundance of what you need. But that is going to be followed by seven years of the most intense drought Egypt has ever seen. Everything will be wiped out. You won't have anything. It's going to be the most intense drought that, the, that this land has ever seen. And, Joseph, and the Pharaoh hears this and says, okay, well, what should I do? And Joseph's like, well, 
I'm just a Hebrew slave, but what I would do is find a guy who's good with dreams, put him in charge, and get him to monitor what the people do for the first seven years. Tax them really heavily. It'll feel harsh, but they'll be in abundance. They can afford it. Put aside what you need to get through the next seven years. Put aside not only what the Egyptians will need, but what the surrounding countrymen will need. You think you're powerful now, Pharaoh. You think you're wealthy now. Wait until everybody around here realizes that the only place to get food is in Egypt. You're gonna be more powerful, more wealthy than you've ever been before. And the Pharaoh says, does anyone else have a good idea? And everyone just kind of looks at their feet and he says, congratulations, Joseph, you're now the 2IC of Egypt. You're the governor of the land. And so Joseph goes from favorite son to betrayed brother, to slave, to prisoner, to the 2IC of the most powerful empire in the world. And that's what gets us to chapter 42. And what's really interesting about chapter 42 is that the perspective changes. The perspective changes from Joseph, whose story we've been following, and all of a sudden, we're back on the ranch. We're back with the brothers, we're back with the family. The perspective, the story wheel shifts. And we're now in the years of drought. We're now in the years of famine. And we're back on the ranch with Jacob and his sons who 22 years ago sold their brother into slavery. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 42, verse one. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. The 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, sorry, brother with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's son, Israel is Jacob's new name, sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. It's been 22 years. It's been 22 years since these brothers sold their brother into slavery. It's been 22 years that they have been holding on to guilt and shame and pain and fear. 22 years that that moment they decided to sell their brother has been playing on their mind. 22 years that every time they hear the dreaded E word, Egypt, they feel like they've been stabbed in the heart. How do I know? Because when Jacob says to them, guys, we are starving. There's food in Egypt, go and get some. They all just look at each other. And Jacob's like, guys, why every time I mention Egypt, you guys look at each other like that? It's because for 22 years, Egypt has been their worst nightmare. You see, that's the irony in the story, is that 22 years ago, they had a brother who had dreams, and now for 22 years, he has been their nightmare. Because for 22 years, they have dreaded the idea of going to Egypt and having to face their worst nightmare, having to face what they did, having to face the guilt and the shame and the pain of what they did. For 22 years, every single time they've seen someone pass by their field coming from Egypt, it has felt painful, terrifying, that someone would stop 
and they would say, to catch up on the news of the world as you would, oh yeah, we've just come from Egypt, oh. And they dreaded the idea that someone would say to them, actually, we met a slave there who said he was from around here in a big family. For 22 years, they've been terrified that they're gonna be found out. For 22 years, they have been plagued by guilt and shame from this one decision they made, from this one moment, from this one mistake that they made. For 22 years, they've been dreading the idea of going to Egypt. For 22 years, they've wondered what happened to Joseph. For 22 years, they've wondered what would have happened if we didn't make that decision. And now, in chapter 42 of Genesis, they have to face their Egypt. So let me ask you this morning, what is your Egypt? What is it in your story, in your past, in your life that has plagued you with guilt and with shame? Maybe for decades, maybe for years, maybe for months, what is it in your life that you hope and you pray that no one here will ever find out about? What is it in your life that plays on your mind over and over and over again? What is it in your past, in your story, that plagues you with guilt and shame, that thing that you just cannot escape, that every time someone says that word or reminds you of that person, that moment, that season, that conversation, that relationship, that you feel like you've been stabbed in the heart. What is your Egypt this morning? Because in chapter 42 of Genesis, these guys are gonna face their Egypt. And this morning, I want you to face yours. I want you to go there, and I know that you're used to squashing it down every time you start to think about it, but I want you to think about that thing in your life that has plagued you, followed you. And it's not about forgiveness. You know, I'm not here this morning to tell you that there is forgiveness for that thing that happened in your life. There is forgiveness, but as Christians, we often find forgiveness easy. I mean, it's there. It's there for us to take. We can't do anything about the work of Jesus on the cross. It's been done. And so forgiveness, we often accept, but there's often a step that we don't take, which is toward freedom. Freedom from the guilt and the shame and the pain and the fear that comes from our life, from our story, from a moment, from a season, from a conversation, from a relationship, from a sin that's plagued you. Here's the thing about guilt and shame. It can paralyze you. It paralyzes these brothers you know, like this is their salvation. This is how their family does not starve, by going to Egypt. But these guys just stop and look at each other. You see, guilt and shame has the power to paralyze you. And so does fear. You see, Jacob's not off the hook here either. Jacob, even though he didn't have anything to do with what happened 22 years ago, for 22 years, he has been plagued by fear. How do I know? Because he says, you guys go to Egypt, but you can't take my son, Benjamin. You see, Joseph had a brother, Benjamin, and without Joseph, Benjamin became Jacob's new favorite. 
And Jacob says, you need to go to Egypt, otherwise we're all gonna die, but you can't take my Benji. You can't take my little Benji. And you've got to understand, Benjamin is not a two-year-old sort of coloring in the corner. He's got a beard, you know, like he's a real man. But Jacob is not about to live through the pain that he experienced 22 years ago again with Benjamin. He is paralyzed by fear. The brothers are paralyzed by guilt and shame, and Jacob is paralyzed with fear. That's what happens here at the start of chapter 42. What is it for you that's stopping you from moving forward? Because you are not about to get hurt like that again. You are not about to deal with that sort of guilt and shame again. What is it that's stopping you from moving forward? Because every time you think about how God has called you, how God has created you, you think, that can't be me because of what happened in my past? What is it that's stopping you from moving forward? Because every time you read what the Bible says about you, every time you receive a word of encouragement from somebody, you think, if only they knew. If only they knew what I had done, what I had said, who I had been. If only they knew that moment in my life and it's stopping you from receiving what God has for you. It's stopping you from receiving the future that God has planned for you. What is your Egypt? These guys are gonna have to face their Egypt. But they're paralyzed by their guilt. Jacob is paralyzed by his fear, and the family is stuck. They're stuck. And I wonder, as I think about this, whether or not God pushes the famine in Canaan to a point where he says, well, now you've got to face it. They have no other choice but to face Egypt. They have no other choice. And as they walk through the gates of Egypt, I wonder what that's like for them. Surely they didn't say anything. They didn't need to. They knew what each other were thinking. But as they walk through the gates of Egypt and they see slave after slave after slave, you've got to understand this is an empire that is built on slaves. They are everywhere. They're trying to catch eye contact with each and every slave they see. Could that be him? Could that be him? Could that be him? They're absolutely at the tipping point of their guilt and their shame as they prepare themselves to come face to face with their Egypt with their brother who they betrayed, their brother who they sold. Verse six. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now stop, how do these guys not recognize Joseph? They're looking for him. I mean, he recognizes them, but how do they not recognize him? Well, firstly, what did you look like 22 years ago? You know, like that's a long time. Joseph is not this 17-year-old boy anymore. He's a man. That's not who they're expecting to see. Furthermore, they're not expecting to see the governor of Egypt. They're not expecting to see Joseph in a royal toban with his royal robes on, standing on a platform. 
You know, they're expecting to see a slave. They're not expecting to see Joseph as the two IC of the most powerful empire in the world. And he is probably standing up on a pedestal while they are literally bowing down, kissing the marble steps in front of him. And then also we're about to find out that he's actually not speaking to them directly. Remember, he learnt the language. He's speaking the Egyptian language and he's speaking to them through an interpreter. So not only do they not recognize his face after 22 years and in this royal sort of getup, they also can't hear his voice. And they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Verse nine. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. So Joseph recognizes his brothers, sees the scene, sees himself in power with the power to let them live or die, literally, and them bowing down, kissing the marble in front of him. And he realizes this is the dream. And I cannot believe that at this moment, Joseph doesn't rip off his turban and be like, yeah! this is the dream. Hey guys, it's me, Joseph. Remember 22 years ago when I told you I had a dream that you guys were gonna be bowing down to me? Hello? Like how does he not immediately reveal himself and say, it's happening. I told you guys, I told you this was gonna happen. You tried to get rid of me, but look, how does that not happen? That's not how Joseph plays this. He says, you guys are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. And they say, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. Verse 11, we're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. One is no more. I find this really interesting that as they describe their family to the governor, as they describe their family in defense of themselves, they tell the whole story. There's 12 of us, one's back home and one is no more. Let me tell you about the one who doesn't exist. Well, if he doesn't exist, why are you mentioning him at all? Because in this moment, when they're cornered by their guilt and their shame, what's on their mind? Joseph. What's on their mind? What they did 22 years ago. What's at the forefront of their memory? What they did 22 years ago. This is them facing their Egypt. And it's hard to understand why Joseph doesn't immediately reveal himself. But you've got to understand, Joseph has spent the last 22 years being a servant of God, being used by God in so many different ways. And it's like God continues to use Joseph in this moment, not for Joseph, but for God. And Joseph continues to be the vessel for God. Joseph continues to be used by God in the completion of this story, in the reconciliation of this family. And God's not quite ready to hit the bell yet. And so God continues to use Joseph as they continue to face their Egypt, come to terms with what they did, receive forgiveness for what they did, and ultimately freedom from their guilt and their shame and their pain and their fear. Joseph says to them, 
in verse 14. It's just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. What's on their mind as they find themselves in a prison in Egypt? This must be us being punished for what we did. What are they thinking about when they're in prison in Egypt? They're thinking about the moment they sold their brother into slavery. They're replaying the moment on their mind. They can bring to their memory straight away Joseph's pleas, Joseph's pleading for his life, pleading for them not to do this. Please don't do this. That's what they hear in their mind. All they can see is Joseph's face begging them not to do this. Do you do that? As you consider that moment, that conversation, that relationship, that season of your life, can you replay that conversation in your mind? Can you replay some of the things that you did, some of the words that you used, some of the conversations that you had like that, regardless of how much time has gone, regardless of how much forgiveness you have received, it's still there, playing like a script in your mind at the forefront of your memory. That's what happens to these guys. 22 years has passed, but they have never forgotten what Joseph said how Joseph pleaded for his life. It's right there. And they think this must be us being punished. And then Reuben stands up and he starts blaming. Verse 22, Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So Reuben stands up and plays the I told you so game. He starts blaming. I told you we should never have sold Joseph. You should have listened to me. Do you do that? As you think about your Egypt, as you think about that thing in your past that you've never been able to get over, do you start blaming? It wasn't my fault. It was out of my control. If only that other person hadn't, then I wouldn't have... Here's the thing, Reuben, you're in jail with everybody else. You know, blaming is not going to get you out of this, Reuben. You know, going back into history and saying, well, I was the voice of reason. I said, don't kill them. I told you not to do this. It still happened under your watch and you are still imprisoned by your past. Do you blame? As you think about why that thing happened, it's easy to try and get out of it by blaming. And that's what Reuben does. And as Joseph hears this happening, they don't know that he can understand what they're saying, but it just devastates him. The pain 
and the hurt and the guilt and the shame that his family are experiencing absolutely devastates him. The brokenness in his family, the brokenness in his brothers absolutely devastates him. And he has to go and have a moment to weep over it. And it's like he realizes, well, my family's actually starving. Like my dad is starving. I need to get these guys home with some food. And so he keeps Simeon and he sends them on their way. In verse 25, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip seven verses, because they just go home and they tell their dad what happened, which we've already read. Seven verses, verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver, When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you wanna take Benjamin, everything is against me. If you're looking for a great Bible verse to put on a coffee mug, Genesis uh, Genesis 42, 36. Everything is against me. You know, forget like, you know, do not lean on your own understanding. Like, or, or you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, everyone loves that one. Genesis 42, verse 36. Everything is against me. Isn't that the cry of our heart sometimes? Everything is against me. And I find this absolutely incredible that this is their response. This is their response to their salvation. Joseph has literally given them food for free. He's packed their bags with more than they need and put their silver back in there. This is my family. You don't have to pay for food here. Your money's no good here. And as they open their sacks and they see this gift, this blessing, their response is, what has God done to us? Everything is against me. They cannot see the blessing in front of them because of the fear and the guilt and the shame that they're experiencing. They cannot see this free gift that has been given to them because all that they can see is the guilt and the shame in their life. It is holding them back from receiving a free gift. It is holding them back from seeing free salvation literally in this story. What is your guilt and shame holding you back from seeing, from experiencing? You know, what, how is God trying to bless you? What gifts is the Holy Spirit trying to put upon you that you are so caught up in your guilt and your shame that you feel unworthy of? This can't be right. This must be God working against me. I am not worthy of this blessing. I am not the person that should be given this gift because of what I did 22 years ago. That's what happens here, and it's fascinating. You see, the problem is, guilt and shame and fear can rob you of your future. And that's what happens here. And Reuben, Reuben actually uh, puts his future on the line. He's so 
done with experiencing this guilt and this shame. He stands up, he is done with this. He is done with this. He is not about to experience another 22 years of guilt and shame because Simeon's back in Egypt and he's about to take Benjamin back as well. He stands up in verse 37 and he says to Jacob, you may put both of my sons to death if, you do not bring him, if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. Reuben's like, I am done with this. I cannot do this again. I cannot leave Simeon behind and deal with 22 more years of guilt and shame for another brother lost. I can't do that. I am done. And he says to Jacob, give Benjamin to me, entrust him to me. If I don't come back, if I fail, kill your grandsons. And Jacob's like, cool, thanks. But he is done. He is willing to put his future on the line because he is so done with dealing with this guilt and this shame and this pain. Are you done? Are you ready to deal with your past and step into your future? You know, sometimes our past can be so much in front of you that anything God wants to do in you, through you, and for you, you just can't see it. It's like trying to drive a car forward looking out the back window. It cannot be done. You can't do that. But that is what the past does. If you are constantly thinking about, focusing on, finding your worth and your identity in something that happened to you or something that you did or something that you experienced, you cannot drive the car forward. And this is what happens and this is what I want to encourage you in today because as Christians, we know that we can receive forgiveness. We know that forgiveness is there for us to take, but we often don't take up the grace part the part that offers freedom from our past, the part that offers freedom from our guilt and our shame and our fear and our pain. You know, this is what Jesus does. You know, when Jesus, after he pulled off Easter and rose from the dead, he made sure he took a walk with Peter. Peter was the only disciple that came back to town for the trial of Jesus. And as Jesus is uh, being, having, experiencing this sort of non-existent mock trial, as he's being whipped and beaten, Peter finds himself around a fire. And Peter makes the biggest mistake of his life. You know, as Peter is sitting around this fire, he denies knowing Jesus. He denies Jesus three times. He denies knowing Jesus, he denies following Jesus, he even denies that he's a Galilean. He makes the biggest mistake of his life. This is Peter. Peter, who Jesus finds on the, you know, the, the beach one day and says, come follow me, Peter. Peter, who becomes one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. Peter, who gets to walk into these incredible, miraculous moments of ministry where Jesus will raise little girls from the dead and feed thousands of people. You know, Peter gets to experience some of the best moments of Jesus. Not long ago, he was with Jesus and saw Moses and Elijah come right before his eyes. This is Peter who has experienced Jesus. This is Peter who at the Last Supper says to Jesus, I will never let anything happen to you, Lord. And don't wash my feet, I'm not worthy. I should be washing your feet. This is Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus. And he finds himself around a fire one night making the biggest mistake of his life. He denies even knowing Jesus because he's scared. And then Jesus comes back to life 
And he gets a message to the disciples. In Mark chapter 16, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Tell the disciples and Peter. He's the only disciple who's named. Why? Because Jesus knows what Peter's thinking. He can't mean me. He can't mean me, not after what I did. Because for three days, for three days, all Peter has thought about is that moment around the fire. For three days, all Peter has replayed in his mind over and over and over again is that denial of Jesus. For three days, he's replayed that mistake. For three days, he's lived with the guilt and the shame of what he did, of what he said. And now Jesus comes back to life and says, tell the disciples, I wanna meet them. And Peter's like, he cannot possibly mean me. I'm not a disciple anymore, not after what I did. There's no way Jesus would want to see me after what I did. And Jesus knows. And so he says, make sure Peter knows, I mean him. And when the message gets to Peter, he's like, not me. And the message is like, well, he used your name, Peter, so I'm pretty sure it is you. And so Peter goes and he meets Jesus on the beach. And Jesus says, let's go for a walk. And they take a walk along the beach. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. And they have a conversation. And in that conversation, Jesus makes sure Peter knows it's done. You are forgiven. And you and I, we're good. You and I, Peter, we're okay. I don't want you to let that mistake hold you back from who I am calling you to be, Peter. Build my church. Go. Be who I have called you to be. Be who God has created you to be. Don't let this mistake stop you from doing that. Don't let this mistake fill you with doubt that you are not the man I have called to do this. You and I are good. They do some business on the beach. And then Peter is able to walk freely into the call of God on his life. And every town he walks into, every crowd he stands up and speaks to, he is never afraid that someone at the back is gonna stand up and say, hey, aren't you that guy that was around the fire that night? Oh no. Peter's not afraid of that. Peter wants that to happen. Peter wants someone at the back of the crowd to stand up and say, you denied Jesus. And he's gonna go, yeah, I did. Come up here and let me tell you the story of forgiveness and freedom that I experienced through the person of Christ. Let me tell you and show you what it looks like to be forgiven. Let me tell you what it looks like to be set free from the biggest mistake of my life. Let me tell you the conversation that I had with Jesus on the beach that set me free from the biggest mistake. You can have that too. Jesus does some business with Peter on the beach and he's set free. Yes, he is forgiven but he's also set free to be who God has called him to be. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness. You know, maybe today you've asked for forgiveness and you've received forgiveness, 
but you're stuck still experiencing the guilt and the shame of your past, still experiencing the fear of what might happen if you let go. I wanna encourage you this morning, find freedom, do some business with Jesus. I wanna invite you all to stand this morning as we get ready to finish. I wonder this morning as you consider your Egypt, as you consider that thing in your life, that relationship, that season, that conversation, that thing that you did, whether you're free from that or whether you've let guilt and shame and fear and pain stop you from walking in the call and the power of Christ in your life. And this morning, before we sing, I want, I want to encourage you, if that's you, I just want you to hold out your hands. You know, there's nothing magical about what happened on the beach between Jesus and Peter. But sometimes we need to do business with Jesus. Sometimes we just need to have a conversation with Jesus that says, Jesus, I know that this is in my life and it's holding me back. Would you help me to set, be set free from this? Jesus, would you tell me that I'm okay? Would you tell me that you and I are okay? Would you set me free? Would you lift this weight from my shoulders? Would you lift this weight of the past from my face so that I can see clearly forward, so that I can stop trying to drive the car of my life forward by looking out the back window? God, would you help me to turn my head so that I'm facing forward, free from my past, free from guilt, free from shame, free from fear, free from pain. Sometimes all we need to do is have a conversation with Jesus. Have a conversation with Jesus that says, would you set me free? So this morning, I wanna invite you, if that's you, if you've got something that you need to do business with Jesus about, just hold your hands out in front of you like this. Hold your hands out in front of you like this. Everyone's gonna close their eyes and we're gonna pray together. If that's you this morning, hold your hands out in front of you and do some business with Jesus. I'm just gonna give you a few moments as the band sort of plays quietly to have a conversation with Jesus. And then I'm gonna pray for you. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you, or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.